out on a deserted island somewhere and just uh, teach him to survive, ultimately, when he reached a certain age, he would desire to worship. He would desire to worship. He would desire to give honor to something or someone other than himself. And failing that, he would worship himself. Because man must worship, just like man must breathe and man must eat and man has the urge to survive, man also has a God-given need to worship. Today, we're going to examine this question of worship. And we're going to try to determine what it is that God requires of us in worship. Because we've come here this morning to do what? To worship. We've taken buses and we've come from out of town and uh, we've made preparations, uh, we've organized children to be taken care of and so on and so forth. To do what? In order to worship God. I believe therefore it is apropos to examine the question, what is it that God wants from us? What will God accept from us in the form of worship? And in this study, I suppose it'd be the best place, or the best place to begin, rather, would be with the word worship. What is worship? Well, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, because the Old Testament was written in the Hebraic language, the Old Testament word for worship meant simply to prostrate oneself, to just face down on the floor, to prostrate oneself as a sign of homage. As a matter of fact, the high priest in the Old Testament, when he would go into the Holy of Holies, at times would prostrate himself, face downwards, as a sign of reverence to God. And so the word in the Old Testament meant actually to prostrate oneself. In the New Testament, the word from the Greek translated into the English worship was a word that meant to kiss forward, to send a kiss forward. And the element of love was added, the idea of love, not only respect, but love, to, to give a kiss and to offer it forward. And therefore, when we talk about worship in our study this morning, we see that worship are those actions and those activities that demonstrate respect and reverence and love towards someone greater than ourselves. And so when we are worshiping, when we come to church to worship, or rather should I say, when we gather as the church to worship, the thing that we are doing is that we are going through a series of activities that demonstrates our love and our reverence and the honor that we want to give to someone who is greater than ourselves. That's what worship is all about. Well, then the question comes up, who then should be worshiped? Who should we worship? Who is the one that should be worshipped? Well, in Exodus, in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 to 3, that question is answered when God speaks and says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. We know that as being the first commandment in a series of ten ordinances. But in this passage, we see that the one who is to be worshipped is God. Now, someone says, boy, you know, well, I didn't need to come to church this morning to find out that the one that I've got to worship is God. I know that already. 
But you know, there are a lot of gods, there are a lot of deities, there are a lot of people who claim that this one is God, and this one is God, and this one is God. And a lot of people say, well, I worship God, I, I send up my worship to God. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, is the focus of our worship the true God? And how do we know? Well, the Bible tells us that the true God is the one, that entity, that being who created heaven and earth. That entity and being who chose Abraham and through Abraham created a people and from that people brought Jesus Christ to earth. The God who did these things, this is the God to whom worship is due. Not that being that some claim uh, who uh, sent a Buddha to earth. Not that being uh, that some who claim sent uh, uh, Muhammad to earth. Not that being through whom a variety of spiritual powers uh, is as attributed to in various countries in this world. Because a lot of people say God. You know, I worship God. The God to whom a worship is due is the God of creation. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jesus. That's the God to whom worship is due. That is the God who speaks to us here. That is the God to whom we offer our songs. And that is the God that we have gathered here to worship today. I know this is almost a self-evident fact that I wanted to make clear the idea that there is only one God and there is a very specific God to whom honor and worship is due. Well, the next question to answer is, how is God to be worshipped? Because there are a lot of people in the world that claim belief in God, the Father of Jesus Christ. They say, I believe in God, the Father of Jesus Christ. I worship Him too. And the question is, yes, but how do you worship Him? Do you worship Him in the way that he has ordained. You see, the Bible, which is God's word, tells us how God wants us to worship him. And a good example of this is, is the story in Exodus chapter 32. If you've opened your Bible there, just flip over a few chapters. And I want to read to you just a brief story. Again, one that you're very familiar with but one that demonstrates the danger of worshiping the true God the wrong way. You know, you could have the wrong God or you could have the right God and worship Him the wrong way. You've got to offer worship to the God, to God Almighty, Father of Jesus Christ. And in addition to that, you've got to worship Him in the way that He ordains. And this story shows how sincere worship can still be condemned. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, it's the story when Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the commandments. And it says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graven tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. 
And now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And so the next day they arose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. It's a kind of a scary story. You know, Moses goes up on the mountain, and the people get kind of fidgety. They say, hey, this fellow's been gone 40 days. We're tired of waiting for him. We want to worship. We want to worship God. You, Aaron, the priest, you make us a god. And so Aaron goes not by the word of the Lord, but he goes by the consensus of the people. How many times have I told you the kingdom of God is not a democracy, it is a kingdom. And so Aaron, frightened, goes by the consensus of the people. They want a God, so he makes them a God. He makes them a molten calf and an altar, and they burn incense. Well, you know, when, in the 20th century, when we see that, we say, boy, what a bunch of pagans. But you know, in that time and era, a calf represented what was best in society. It wasn't a sign of disrespect to God, it was what was best. I mean, they took their, their gold and their rings and their money. They had a big special collection. You know, they had a special collection to fix the roof. They had a huge special collection. And they built this magnificent symbol of religion because the calf in those days represented fertility and all that was best. And they burned incense and they had a wonderful worship service to worship God. These people thought they were doing a good thing. They thought they were worshiping God. They needed to worship. But they didn't worship God according to the way that God had said. And did you hear what God said to Moses? You better get back down there and straighten them out. These people are obstinate, hard-headed, rebellious, evil. And did you hear what God said to Moses? He says, step aside, because Moses was there between the people and God. He said, you step aside. I am going to destroy them and I will make out of you, Moses, a new nation. Do you realize what God was about to do? He was about to wipe out a nation that took him 600 years to create. And he was going to start all over again with Moses. God didn't care to spend another millennium to create another nation through whom Christ would come. And why? Had they committed adultery? Had they committed fornication? Had they murdered? No. They had decided to worship him in the way that they had chosen and not in the way that he had prescribed. Is it serious to worship God in the incorrect way? You better believe it's serious. In the New Testament, Someone will say, well, that's the Old Testament. Sure, we're not under the Old Testament. Of course not. We're under the New Testament. We're under the teachings of Jesus Christ. But God is the same God. He is the God who is there yesterday and today and tomorrow. And the same God who requires the same things of us. Do you think just because we're in the New Testament, we're no longer re required to obey God? Do you think just because we're in the New Testament, we're no longer required to worship God? According to his commands? Sure. 
Sure we are. Well, then someone will say, okay, what is acceptable worship? And I'm glad someone has asked that question in their heart because the next part of my lesson deals with what the New Testament teaches us concerning acceptable worship. What does Jesus teach us? What do the apostles teach us concerning worship in the New Testament time? Acceptable worship. Well, if you read the New Testament, and I mean if you go over it and over it and over it several times, looking for activities that offer worship and honor to God prescribed by Jesus Christ and by the apostles, you know what? You're going to find only five things. You're not going to find six, and you're not going to find eight or nine. You will find only five things in the New Testament that are either written or commanded or an example given of that is a kind of activity that God will accept as worship. Number one, and those are the ones I want to share with you this morning. Number one, when we gather together to worship God, one thing we can do that he accepts is to share the Lord's Supper. In Luke uh, chapter 22, verse 19, Jesus, after, just before he went to the cross, shared the bread and the wine, and he said to his apostles, do this in remembrance of me. And from that time until this time, until the very end of the world, disciples of Jesus Christ can gather together and share the bread and share the fruit of the vine, knowing not only are they obeying Jesus Christ, but through this activity are offering worship that is acceptable to God. You want to do something that pleases God when you gather together? Share communion. Remember His Son. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, um, we read that... Um, Peter is preaching the very first sermon on Pentecost Sunday. And 3,000 people are baptized. And the apostles organize the church in Jerusalem. And what's the first thing that the apostles teach these new disciples? Well, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves, or they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread. The very first thing, you know, New Christians class in Jerusalem, the very first thing that the apostles taught the new disciples was that they were to share the Lord's Supper as a form of worship. The second thing that we can do to worship God acceptably is to pray. When we gather together and pray, it's a good thing. God accepts that. Jesus always prayed, and he taught his, his disciples to do so. In Matthew 6, 9, they said to him, Teach us how to pray. And he said, When you pray, pray in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, and so on and so forth. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And again, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, you know when the apostles were teaching these new disciples? What was it that they taught? It says in Acts 2, 42, they continued or devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the Lord's Supper and to prayer. And so when we gather together, why do we get someone in front to pray? Because God accepts that form of activity as worship. We can pray in confidence. Prayer to God in Jesus' name is also acceptable and also an integral part of worship. Number three, preaching and teaching. Preaching and teaching is part of worship, part of acceptable worship. In Matthew chapter 28, I'll just read that for you, in Matthew chapter 28, uh, after Jesus is uh, resurrected, 
and he's teaching his uh, apostles the things that he wants them to do and to carry on, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, go out, preach, teach, uh, 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 baptize. And then he says, teaching them, teaching the disciples to observe all that I commanded you. The teaching and the preaching of all the things that Jesus taught is part of acceptable worship. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, um, verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul is teaching a young evangelist about church work. And he says to him, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Exhortation, correction, teaching, preaching. This is all part of acceptable activity when we gather together to worship God. You know, we could get together and worship and have a dance. Why not? Or we could say free beer and pretzels. There probably would be a lot of people who would come to church if we offered videos, latest videos. But you see, when we say the word worship, worship means something special to God. It means communion. It means prayer. It means the teaching and the preaching of the words of Jesus Christ. And it also means singing, praising, the offering of praise to God in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the fourth thing. Communion, prayer, teaching and preaching, praise. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, quickly. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Paul is teaching the church at Ephesus what body life is all about, what they're supposed to be doing and active in when they gather together. And he says in verse 15, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now watch, he says, understand what the will of the Lord is. Now we see what the will of the Lord is. He says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't fill yourself with wine, don't fill yourself with the world, but fill yourself with the Spirit. And then in the next line, he explains what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Does it mean that we have to do miracles or speak in tongues or, or, or do extraordinary, mysterious, spiritual things? Is that what being filled with the Spirit means? Listen to what Paul says in verse 19. He says, And be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. The singing of spiritual songs. Not any kind of songs, not rock and roll, not folk. You know, not new wave, not punk, not, you know, the singing of spiritual songs. I remember when I first became a Christian, having been used to worldly music for most of my life, it was very hard for me to get used to the hymns. I said, boy, I wish they had just, just a little more, you know, you know, I wish, I, you know, it hasn't got enough, you know. And I realized that it, they're not supposed to have a lot of...
Yeah, you look on TV and everybody, oh, they're going to town. Yeah. Are they praising Jesus or are they just getting off? Spiritual songs and hymns and psalms. Not rock and roll. Not boogie music. Spiritual, it, spiritual songs are neither white or black. They're spiritual. And the things that those songs and those hymns and those psalms have in common is that they give honor to God. Not that they give us some sort of visceral or emotional pleasure, but that they give honor to God. They can be fast, they can be slow. They can be three-quarter time, they can be six-eight, they can be uh, whatever. But the key is that they give honor to God. Spiritual songs. Another thing too is, if we notice, if you're a visitor here, you notice that we don't have any instruments or guitars or a band. You know, sometimes you see a church, you know, Sunday night, band night, 16 pieces. Come one, come all, and bring a friend. And I've heard some people say, well, you should have a band. You'd have a lot more people here. But we don't have a band because the Bible teaches us to sing. It teaches us to sing, to make melody in our hearts. The Greek word actually says to sing without the accompaniment of an instrument. As a matter of fact, the early churches in the first century, the apostolic churches, those churches were known because of the fact that they sang. All the other religions in the first century used instruments, tambourines and flutes and all kinds of things, all of them, even the Jewish ones. Although by the time of the New Testament, even the Jewish religion did not use those things. That's only way back in the Old Testament. But all the pagan religions did. And the early church was known as the a cappella church. They were known as that group of people who sing. And some people say, I wonder why they were like that. They, could have, they all knew how to use instruments. Why? Because the apostles taught them to sing. That's why. And they obeyed. And 2,000 years later... Ephesians tells us to sing, and so we sing and make melody in our hearts with spiritual songs and psalms. Singing. Joyful songs are an acceptable form of worship given to us by God. And finally, number five, giving. Giving. When we gather together, we give. We give for the work of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, Paul says, on the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper that no collections be made when I come. They were making a special collection for the poor in Jerusalem and it was their habit that on the first day of every week they would set aside a certain amount for the collection of the saints. The apostles taught that giving on a regular basis was part of worship. You see, not to give is like not to sing. Could you imagine coming to church today? And there'd be no singing. We got up, an opening prayer. Leonard got up and he did the communion. And then I got up to preach and we had a closing prayer. And we, and we go home. What would you say? What would you think? Then, well, we didn't sing. Why, so what? We didn't, yeah, but we didn't sing. It's, it's not complete. We didn't sing. Or what if we said, you know, we're in a bit of a hurry and I've got a long lesson. Why don't we just skip over the Lord's Supper today? We'll do it twice next Sunday. Oh, <gasps> Well, it's not complete. We didn't have the Lord's Supper. 
Or what if I said, look, you know, I've been busy this week, you know, I've been painting in the office, you know, let's just skip the sermon. You, you've probably heard that. You, I'll give you a break from one of my sermons, you know. Maybe some of you would say amen, but I... <laughs> I'd mean, say it's not complete. We, we haven't heard the word. We have to hear the word. Well, you know, if we don't give, it's not complete. You know, if I said, well, it's not pay week. You know, next week is pay week. First of the month be pay week. You know, let's just skip the offer. It's not complete. Giving is part of worship. And it's, do you know what? Long before there was communion, and long before there was singing, and long before there was any type of ceremonial worship, there was giving. You go all the way back to Genesis. And what was the first problem? What was the very first problem? The very first problem involved a problem in giving. Cain and Abel. What was the problem there? The problem was a, an improper spirit in giving. And so giving to the Lord has always been part of worship. And the apostles gave instructions concerning giving. And I have just a few minutes left, and I'd just like to kind of round out my lesson here by giving you one or two points about giving. You know, you've probably gotten a lot of teaching about communion and singing and things like that, but I wonder if we get a lot of teaching about giving. What does the Bible teach us about this area? Of worship. Well, the first thing that it teaches us is that giving is not a show. Matthew chapter 6, let me just read that for you. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. When therefore you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your alms may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The first rule in giving is that it's not a show. You know, the hypocrites here, the Pharisees, they actually did that. When they were on their way to the temple to give their, their alms, they would actually have someone sounding a trumpet to clear the streets of the market to let everybody know that they were about to go give their offering. And people would go, wow! A generous this is you know rabbi so-and-so look at this look he's actually look at the coins count the coins he's given they actually did that and jesus says they did that but the reward that they're getting for doing that is the applause that they're receiving from the people on the street so there's a certain reward in giving you know like somebody donates a lot of money and they build a new wing of a certain thing then they put a plaque and then they get joe out there in front and they shake hands and he meets the the prime minister and he's a good guy and you know sure he's generous and yes that's wonderful act of charity but the reward that he got he got it he was on the evening news he's got a plaque everybody applauds that's his reward jesus says when you give don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's, almost, that's an exaggeration. It's impossible for your left hand not to know what your right hand is doing. What he's saying is discretion. If you could actually let your left hand do something that your right hand is doing, do it. Discretion. Because when you give, you're not looking to be rewarded by the church, are you? You're not wanting to say, did you know that brother so-and-so gave? The no, no, your reward is from God. And you know what? When you're working in the building, or when you're washing the dishes, or if you volunteer to do the nursery and you don't really feel like it, or you know, if you visit the sick or give a lift, and 
that person doesn't get on their knees and say, you're such a wonderful Christian, I'm so happy, God bless you, you know. If you're not getting that kind of stroking and you get angry about it, there's something wrong with your giving. When you do something, you need to remember that it's the Lord that's going to reward you, not the brethren. If you're waiting for the brethren to reward you, <laughs> take a ticket. Get in line. We, we are notorious, brothers and sisters, as human beings for ingratitude. Your reward comes from God. And so when you give, remember that it's God that's going to reward you. Not the brothers. Once in a while, someone will be sensitive enough to thank you, but uh, you know, it doesn't usually happen that way. And certainly not the world. Rule number one, discretion. Rule number two is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Need to move this along here. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says, verse 11 and 12, Paul says, here by the way, the Corinthian church had begun a special collection to help out, and it was their idea, but now they're kind of slowing down. Do you ever do that? You know, you say, we're going to raise $5,000, you know, do such and such, and the first 3,000 comes in a rush, and then, boy, things kind of peter out, and it's well, that's what happened here in this church. So Paul is kind of reminding them of their original commitment. And he says, But now finish doing it also, that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a man has, not according to what he doesn't have. Well, the point he's making here is, there's got to be a willingness to give. Discretion, willingness. You've got to be willing to give. Now, I hate preaching sermons on giving. I really don't like preaching that. Because that means the church has gotten to a point where I've got to almost beg it to do what it's supposed to do. You know what I'm saying? There needs to be a willingness to give. There needs to be an enthusiasm to give. When they were building the tabernacle in the Old Testament out in the desert, there's a wonderful passage there that, where Moses says to the people, bring in your gold and bring in your stuff. You know, we're going to build a tabernacle. And everybody is really enthusiastic. And there's a passage there where Aaron says, Moses, tell the people to stop. We got too much gold. We got too much money. He says, we have more than enough to complete the tabernacle. That's the kind of spirit that God is looking for in giving. More than enough to do the job. More than enough to finish the work. More than enough to preach the gospel. More than enough to help the poor. More than enough to do what God wants us to do. And not always the other way. Please, could you squeeze another two bucks? You know what I mean? This is not the Spirit of Christ. This is not the Spirit of Christ. What makes our gift acceptable is our willingness to give it, not the amount that we give. And then the third and final rule is in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 this time, just one chapter over, in verse 6 and 7. Paul says, Now this I say, He who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Third rule, give a lot. <laughs> I'm glad that this is a very biblical principle because I wouldn't want anybody to accuse me, you know, typical uh, accusation against preachers always talking about money and I very rarely talk about money. Give a lot. 
Because God loves a cheerful giver. You see, when you give, the proportion by which you give is the proportion that the door of blessing opens up on your own life. Do you know that? When you're stingy with God, a lot of times you cut off the opportunity for your own blessings. Some people, unfortunately, dismiss the generosity of others in order to cover up their own greed. You know, they say, oh, it's easy for him, he makes a lot of money. Oh, well, there are two salaries in their house they can give. Yeah, well, you know, it's easy for him, he's single, he's got a lot of time to do that kind of stuff. Oh, well, that's easy for them, they're married, you know, and they've got nothing to do, so they, they can serve the Lord. Or, well, that's easy for that girl, because she likes to, t you know, it's always easier for somebody else. And you know, when we do that, you know what we're really doing? We're just covering over our own selfishness and greed because we despise the generosity of others. We should rejoice at the generosity of others. It should be something that uh, encourages us. You know what? Do you know how God judges your offering this morning? I'm glad it's in. I wouldn't have wanted to preach this sermon before the offering. <laughs> Do you know how God judges what you've just given this morning? He doesn't judge it by the amount that you've given. He judges it by the sacrifice that it took for you to give what you gave. Because you see, in the church, not everyone can give the same amount, but everyone is expected to make the same sacrifice. Everybody here can make the same sacrifice, even though not everyone here can give the same amount. And when God judges that part of your worship, he judges your prayers, he judges your, your heart when you take communion. He judges your singing. He judges your, your, your word, your teaching. And he judges your offering. And the way he judges your offering is that he measures the sacrifice that it takes for you to give what you give. That's how God measures what you give. In the church, we're all expected to make an equal sacrifice and not give an equal amount. You know what? I'll tell you a personal note. You know, I've traveled a lot, and I've met a lot of brethren in Canada and in the United States that know this church. This is a kind of a, not famous church, but it's a well-known congregation because of so many people who have lived and worked here and moved on. And you know one thing we're really known for here in Machine? Singing. It's a great place to sing, they say. Even now, they say, boy, the singing. Everybody, everybody says, they leave here and say, the singing was so enthusiastic. And, you know, it helps. We've got great acoustics and we have a great song leader. And, you know, people are enthusiastic. They know the hymns well. You know, our singing is great. They like to come here. The singing is enthusiastic. And you know what? See, Michael puts all the songs on the front board here. And you know what? There's never a Sunday that we ever leave without singing all those songs. But you know something else I've noticed? There's an amount written on the backboard. It's called budget. And you know what? I don't think I've ever seen us make the budget. We sing all the songs on the front board, but we rarely, rarely come close to meeting the budget. Wouldn't it be nice if our congregation gave as enthusiastically as it sang? If both parts of that worship were as acceptable to God? All right, let me summarize what I've said, because I've said a lot this morning and you might forget. First thing is, our worship is an offering of respect and praise and love to God. When we want to present these things to the Lord, we do it through a series of spiritual activities. That's worship. 
spiritual activities. The second thing I said was, in order to be acceptable to God and satisfying to us, the spiritual activities that we do must be in accordance to God's word. And number three, I said that according to the Bible, the New Testament portion of the Bible, there are five activities that Christians can do when they gather together in order to acceptably worship God. Number one, remember Jesus by sharing communion. Number two, pray to God in Jesus' name. Number three, sing songs in the love of Jesus. Number four, preach and teach Jesus' words. And number five, give generously and enthusiastically to spread the good news and to care for the needs of the brethren. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40, Paul tells us that all of these things that we do should be done in a manner which is decent and orderly and sober. And so this summarizes the information that I've prepared to share with you today. But in closing out, I want to make sure that you've learned something. That you don't just take with you information home, but you take something with you that hopefully will change you. That's the purpose of preaching, did you know that? The purpose of preaching is to change, to change you. And so in finishing out, I want to tell you just two little things that I hope you've learned today. Number one, I hope that you've learned that there are acceptable and unacceptable ways of worshiping God. And that if you've been involved in an unacceptable way of worshiping God, in any one of these areas, or if you've had a bad attitude in worshiping God, then you need to correct or abandon these things. You need to do that. God will not accept. God will even condemn worship that is not authorized by his word and not done in a proper spirit. That's the first thing. There's good and bad worship and I hope that you're worshiping the right way. And if you're not, change, repent. The second thing I hope that you've learned is that when you do pray and when you do commune and when you do praise and learn the word and give in Jesus' name, I hope that you've learned that when you do these things according to God's word, you're doing the right thing. You're doing the right thing. You're doing a good thing. You're doing a thing that makes God smile. And you can walk out of here feeling good. It's okay to feel good and satisfied and lifted up and edified. Because you have pleased God. You have offered Him acceptable worship. I want to tell you that you should take every opportunity to offer Him acceptable worship. When the church says, hey, tonight we're having worship tonight, 6.30, take advantage of that. We're going to pray, we're going to sing, we're going to have communion, we're going to have another lesson tonight. Take advantage of that to worship your God. And we're going to do it again on Wednesday night. Not the communion part, but the other things. Take advantage of that. Don't set that aside too lightly. If it's a choice between worshiping God or watching Mission Impossible reruns, I encourage you to come and worship God. If it's a choice between worshiping God and catch, or catching up on your wash, come and worship God. God is searching for people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. I hope that in the years to come, a stream of acceptable worship will come forth from this church that will be acceptable to God and will in turn lift up this church and make it beautiful in the sight of God and acceptable 
for when Jesus Christ returns to bring us home with him, where we will worship him forever and ever and ever. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you.